Support for Living on Earth comes from listeners like you. Please make a donation online at LOE.org or call me at 617-629-3638. And thanks. From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. The rocket fuel perchlorate is in the water supply of dozens of states. Now a study from the Centers for Disease Control suggests the pollution may have put millions of women and their children at risk of thyroid disease. I was surprised. I I really did not think we would find in in a population that such low levels were having measurable impacts on people's health. I think it's a real eye-opener about what some of these, what we think are very small levels of chemicals in the environment and what they can do to us. Also, the Grand Cascopedia River in eastern Canada boasts some of the largest salmon in North America. The son of a famous singer-songwriter is hooked on the river and its unusual history. I love the beauty of the river, seeing a bald eagle land as I was casting for a a rising 20-pound salmon. Fishing with Hoagie, this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, this is an encore edition of Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwin. A major study by the U.S. Centers for Disease Control has concluded that trace amounts of the rocket fuel perchlorate found in drinking water, milk, and produce may be endangering the health of millions of women and their children with thyroid disease. The CDC study, begun in 2001, looked at nearly 3,000 Americans and found health effects at exposure levels unanticipated by previous research. The findings are sure to fuel an ongoing controversy among regulators about safe levels of exposure to perchlorate, a persistent pollutant which is found in the groundwater of more than two dozen states. To find out more, we turn now to pediatrician Richard Jackson, professor of public health at the University of California, Berkeley, who is a past director of the CDC's Environmental Health Unit. Hello, sir. Hi, Steve. It's a pleasure to be with you. So, doctor, how how surprised were you by these results? I was surprised. I I really did not think we would find in a a population that such low levels were having measurable impacts on people's health. I mean, I was always taught that the higher levels had the impact. This is kind of a gold standard study. You have the best laboratory in the world for doing biomonitoring, looking at a robust sample of the American people and coming up with findings that have been peer-reviewed extensively and I think will hold up to scrutiny anywhere. Now, Dr. Jackson, first tell me, why are women the risk group here and not men? What's, what's different about women's bodies composition that makes them a vulnerable population to something like this? Well, you know, we all need iodine in our diet, but women in particular, because of pregnancy needs and others, need some more. In fact, they need to be taking vitamins when they're pregnant. Iodine is important as an adult. It helps you make thyroid hormone. Um, your energy levels are related to it, but it's particularly important to infants, to um, the fetus uh, for its development. In fact, if a baby is born without enough iodine or thyroid hormone on board, they can be left permanently damaged. So it's really this um, reproductive age that we're most worried about. Now, what's the connection between perchlorate and iodine and thyroid problems in humans? Well, we've known for a long time we can use perchlorate to treat people with hyperactive thyroids, and it will suppress thyroids putting out of hormones. What we didn't know is would low doses of perchlorate suppress the thyroid functioning? And it looks, at least from this study, and it's just one study, 
that particularly in women with low iodine levels, it is having an effect on the thyroid. So how many women have uh, relatively low iodine levels or thyroid problems? We guess that about a third of the population of women ought to be getting more iodine in their diets. In fact, we've been noticing one of the reasons CDC does these studies is actually in the beginning was to profile the nutritional level of the people of the United States. So over the last 30 years, iodide levels in the U.S. population have been dropping. You're a physician, a pediatrician. Um, For somebody who's listening who's concerned, particularly a woman of reproductive age who's concerned about this, what precautions might she take? I think one is, as a public health doctor, I'm pretty passionate that tap water ought to be safe and everyone ought to be able to drink it and you shouldn't have to go to bottled water and other sources. So uh, demanding that your water suppliers are providing water within the standards and demanding the standards uh, come into compliance with uh, up-to-date science is important, number one. Number two, it is important to get enough iodine in our diets and uh, about a half teaspoon of iodized salt a day will give you enough to get by just fine. Thirdly, women who are pregnant need to be taking their multivitamins for folic acid and lots of other, and calcium and lots of other reasons as well. So those would be three things I would do. How does perchlorate wind up in our groundwater supply? Who's responsible? Much of the perchlorate that's um, in water is a byproduct of various industrial processes. It's quite a durable uh, molecule. It stays in the water for long periods of time and actually can get into food products if that water is used for irrigation. So we're finding perchlorate in many food products, um, lettuce and other vegetables that are irrigated with this water, as well as finding it in the water itself. Now, there's been quite a bit of controversy over the acceptable groundwater levels of perchlorate. What do you think the impact of this CDC study on perchlorate will be? One, it shows the importance of biomonitoring. When I was learning toxicology, we were told, well, the very low doses don't matter. It's really the larger doses that create the poisonous effect. What we're learning from these biomonitoring studies, where large numbers of people are examined for very small levels of these chemicals and then look to see the interaction with genes or other exposures and the rest, we're learning really kind of surprising information. And I was surprised that they found such a robust finding in the CDC study at this level. As the Academy of Sciences sits down and weighs all this information, I suspect they're going to, if all this holds up in subsequent studies, they're going to recommend a more stringent level. But the bottom line is it needs to be an open scientific process up front and an open management process that's understandable once we go into setting an actual standard. Dr. Richard Jackson is a professor of environmental health sciences and the former director of the Center for Disease Control's National Center for Environmental Health. Thank you so much, Dr. Jackson. My pleasure, Steve. Thank you. While much of the research on environmental hazards and reproductive health focuses on women, more and more research shows that men also run special risks. Perhaps the most attention has been paid to men who were exposed to the defoliant Agent Orange while they were soldiers in Vietnam. Back home, many of them fathered children with birth defects such as cerebral palsy and spina bifida. But as scientists have uncovered more evidence of the havoc toxic exposure can wreak on male reproductive health, little has been said about it. Cynthia Daniels hopes to change that. She's written a book entitled Exposing Men, the Science and Politics of Male Reproduction. Ms. Daniels teaches political science at Rutgers University. Uh, Professor Daniels, hello. Hello. Thanks for having me. 
So you're a political scientist. What got you onto the subject of male reproductive health? Well, in my previous work, I had examined female reproductive health and female reproductive politics, looking primarily at the criminal prosecution of women who had used drugs or alcohol during their pregnancy and then were criminally prosecuted for child abuse or delivering drugs to the fetus through the umbilical cord. In the course of doing that work, I came across uh, quite a substantial body of scientific research that indicated that men's use of drugs and alcohol or men's exposure to toxic substances could also produce harm in the children that they fathered, um, increased rates of birth defects, increased rates of mis miscarriage. And so I was a little stunned by the fact that there was no public attention to this growing body of scientific evidence. Now, you say historically the singular focus of reproductive medicine on the female reproductive system was paralleled by concurrent neglect of the male system. I'm quoting from your book here. Why do you think women get so much more attention uh, when it comes to reproductive health? Uh, well, women have historically actually been the property of men. So I think we are looking at that historical vestige of the idea that um, we have a greater right to regulate and control the female reproductive body than the male reproductive body. And I think we still operate with this reproductive sexual division of labor where we see women as primary. It's a cultural assumption that women have the primary responsibility for producing healthy children and caring for healthy children, and that men are really much more distant. So I think that has to do with what I see as um, outdated cultural assumptions about men and women's different or disproportionate relationship to human reproduction. Perhaps as many as maybe about 15 years ago, there was a lot of publicity around some research in Denmark showing that uh, male sperm counts uh, had dropped to, oh, maybe half of their previous levels from uh, samples that have been taken, I guess, back uh, in the 1930s. What was the public response to those findings and that publicity? Oh, well, there were hundreds of magazine stories and newspaper stories about the sperm count drop, you know, many of them with pretty uh, sensationalist titles like sperm under siege and sperm wars, many of them predicting, you know, doom and the end of the earth. It became a metaphor for what many saw as a crisis of masculinity. When these results come out, um, the group in Denmark, led by, I believe it was uh, Nils Skagebeck and others, came under tremendous attack. Why was this uh, research group uh, so questioned by the, uh, the scientific and industrial community? Well, if you believe the evidence, then you have to also believe that men are vulnerable to toxic harm, uh, that men are no longer seen as the ones who are the protectors of women and children, but perhaps they may even be more vulnerable to harm than women. Um, so it undermines certain basic cultural ideals of masculinity, which I think very many people find threatening, and that as a result, there's a great deal of both denial and panic um, in the public response to the evidence. I have to tell you that almost every researcher that I have interviewed in relationship to this book have themselves come under heavy attack every time they find positive associations between, for instance, male exposures to cigarette smoking, for instance, and uh, increased birth defects. Uh, the response they get, both from the scientific community 
as well as from the public as large is just, it's just not believable. And there is still this level of denial that scientists, scientists are met with when they engage in this sort of research. So as a political scientist, where do you think uh, we need to make changes in this society to deal with what uh, you identify as a really serious crisis in male reproduction? You know, we need to start asking the right questions. We need to start asking questions about men's relationship to um, conception, to uh, pregnancy, to child care, uh, childbearing. For instance, just the uh, study that you um, had on air about the association of ADHD with cigarette smoking and lead exposure. Um, you know, I looked at that study, and there were no questions asked about paternal cigarette smoking. Now, how hard would it be in a study like that to ask the women not just about their own use of cigarettes, but about paternal cigarette smoking. We're not even asking the questions. Also, in that study also indicated that high, there are higher rates of ADHD for baby boys, for boy children. Why then are we not asking questions about uh, whether the male body is somehow more vulnerable to harm from lead than the female body? We seem to not want to even ask those questions. Cynthia Daniels uh, is an associate professor of political science at Rutgers University. Her new book is called Exposing Men, the Science and Politics of Male Reproduction. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Coming up, turning coal waste to bricks may help solve a Navajo housing shortage. Stay tuned to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. The place where the states of Arizona, Utah, Colorado, and New Mexico meet is called the Four Corners Region, and thousands of Navajo families live there in overcrowded, dilapidated buildings and trailers, often without running water or electricity. Many have waited for new homes, either from the federal or tribal government, for more than a decade. Now the tribe has a state-of-the-art facility that turns waste from burned coal into a new generation of building materials. As Daniel Crocker of Arizona Public Radio reports, the Navajo hope it will help solve their housing crisis. Coal-fired power plants like the Navajo Generating Station just outside Page, Arizona, create 125 million tons of ash every year. A little more than half that is fly ash, the finest and lightest ash that would fly out the smokestack if it wasn't captured. But at this enormous plant, environmental engineer Paul Ostapuk says a half million tons of fly ash are collected annually from the combustion airstream. There's 16 chambers, six electrical fields in each chamber. We charge the fly ash particles. They're attracted then to curtains, electrical curtains, and we wrap on those curtains and collect the fly ash down in hoppers. So that's the wrapping. Nationwide, about 60% of fly ash collected at power plants is landfilled or reburied in the coal mines it came from. But that's not the case at the Navajo Generating Station. Nearly all of the fly ash created here is trucked three miles down the highway to manufacture a unique new building material called Flexcrete. Gary Damron manages the plant, which is owned by the Navajo Nation. Right now, we 40% uh, of our mixture ratio is fly ash, so it's a very large proportion. 
The ingredients are mixed together and placed in a 20-foot-long mold, where millions of microscopic gas bubbles cause it to rise like a giant loaf of bread to about twice its height. It takes about two days for it to harden or cure. Then it's sawed into bricks that look like traditional cinder blocks, but Damron says are more like an ideal combination between concrete and lumber. Though he says that makes some customers skeptical. They're like, okay, we hear all the benefits, you know, it's easy to work with, it's, uh, it's a solid material, it has a, a, a very high R value as, as far as your heating and cooling requirements, it's fire resistant, it creates a noise barrier, and they always say, okay, tell me what's wrong with it. Being since it's a porous material, you do have to seal it. It's susceptible to moisture if it's left uh, in a raw state. Besides that, I don't think there is a holdback to FlexCrete. FlexCrete is one of several building products known as aerated or cellular concrete that replace a portion of their cement with fly ash. The technology has existed for about 70 years in Europe and more recently in this country. But Damron says FlexCrete is the first concrete developed that doesn't need to be autoclaved, essentially cured in a giant pressure cooker. Uh, to achieve the same thing that we would achieve with FlexCrete would cost about, this plant would cost an additional 15 to 20 times more if we had to initiate an autoclave, and we would consume a large portion of energy to create the same thing. FlexCrete, as well as other aerated concretes with names like Ecrete and Safecrete, offer another environmental bonus. That's because they use fly ash to replace cement. For every ton of cement produced, one ton of carbon dioxide is released into the atmosphere. These new products, though, have been developed against the backdrop of a fierce disagreement over fly ash. The coal industry considers it a benign byproduct. Environmentalists like Lisa Evans with the Clean Air Task Force believe the ash, at least in its powdery form, is hazardous. Like the coal it came from, fly ash contains numerous heavy metals and other toxic substances such as arsenic, chromium, lead, mercury, selenium, boron, and more. And when the ash comes into contact with water, these hazardous substances leach out of the coal ash and enter the environment, and sometimes in quantities or often quantities that are harmful to health and, and the environment. But the EPA says fly ash is not a hazardous waste. As a result, it's up to the states to regulate its disposal. The results have been uneven. A landfill leak in Indiana and a coal ash landslide in Pennsylvania have contaminated drinking water supplies. Evans says stricter disposal regulations would spur utilities to find more ways to reuse fly ash. In the northeast corner of the Navajo Nation, 73-year-old Mary Augustine tries out the water pump in front of her brand new home, the first on the reservation built with FlexCrete. Mary and her husband Key had been on a waiting list for a new home for years. Their old house had only one electrical outlet and a leaky roof. Now Mary says they'll be able to stay here in this wide sandstone canyon dotted with cottonwoods. We love to live here. We've been living here for uh, almost um, 37 years. It's just uh, real quiet. You can just go out and walk and walk and walk. It's something that you dreamed about and came a reality. This house. <laughs> yeah. And then some people say that just like the extreme 
makeover. <laughs> That's the TV show that rebuilds houses. This home, though, was built by the Navajo Housing Authority and designed by the Stardust Center for Affordable Housing at Arizona State University. Daniel Glenn, the center's co-director, opens a door into the home's entryway. Inside, it's cool, despite the hot late summer sun. Glenn says he had planned to use straw bales until he learned that Flexcrete made a thicker 12-inch block. The disadvantage of, of straw bale is it's not a good mass. It's a good insulator, but not a good mass. In hot climates, you need mass to absorb the heat. And so the 12-inch thick mass wall behaves extraordinarily well in this high desert climate. That's what the Navajo Housing Authority is banking on. The NHA financed the construction of the Flexcrete plant in Page and has a 10% ownership stake in the technology. The Navajo Authority hopes its new, cheaper building product will help put a dent in the estimated 60,000 new homes needed across the reservation. For Living on Earth, I'm Daniel Crocker on the Navajo Nation. If you were to look up in a tree and see a kangaroo, you might jump out of your skin in surprise. But what's a kangaroo doing in a tree? Well, if it's a tree kangaroo, it's probably making itself right at home. Not much is known about the elusive tree kangaroo, but scientist Lisa Dobick hopes to change that. She's been researching these teddy bear-like tree climbers and working to conserve the ancient forests of Papua New Guinea that one species of these high-altitude marsupials calls home. On a recent field expedition, Lisa Dobbitt brought along author Cy Montgomery. Cy wrote a children's book about their adventure called Quest for the Tree Kangaroo. Cy and Lisa, welcome to Living on Earth. Thanks for having us. Thank you. It's great to be here. So, Cy, what's the tree kangaroo look like? Oh, my gosh. It, it looks like something that Dr. Seuss would have made up if he was working with the manufacturer of stuffed toys. <laughs> it is just the most adorable thing you've ever seen. It has these pert, upright ears. It has a, a white snout with a lovely little pink nose. Um, it has a long golden tail, and it has a lemon yellow or white belly and great big, sweet eyes. Unbelievably cute. And it's about the size of a great big raccoon. Sai, when you first went into the cloud forest where these uh, tree kangaroos are at home, what was it like? What did you see? What is one of these cloud forests like? Oh, man, it's a gorgeous, gorgeous place. I, I like to tell people it's like what heaven would look like if heaven had leeches. Um, it's <laughs> Okay. <laughs> and who knows? Maybe they do. Uh, first of all, to get there, this is the most remote place I've ever been in in my life in all the expeditions I've ever done. We had to hike for three days up into the cloud forest, up to 10,000 feet, where the forest is just shrouded in mist. It feels like a mystical magic magical place. And all the great trees are covered in moss. And the moss is laced with ferns. And there's great big vines hanging from everything, thick with moss. There's orchids growing out of the trees. There's rhododendrons growing out of the trees. Some of the flowers are huge and showy, and some of them are small as a dressmaker's pin. And it looks just like the kind of place where you'd expect some hobbit or some troll to step out. <laughs> but 
better than that. Look who's there: kangaroos in the trees. Now, Lisa, these guys are hard to see. I mean, let alone monitor or track. What do we know about tree kangaroos, and and what have you learned in studying them? Well, what we do know is that they are kangaroos. They're in the kangaroo family. They have pouches like regular kangaroos, but they live in the trees. And really, nothing was known about them. But from the work that we've been doing in Papua New Guinea, we now know how they use the forest, how much forest they need to eat and to move around to find their mates. We're learning a lot of different things. Lisa, how do you catch an animal that's hard to see? And looking at the book that you guys put together in the photographs, seems to be perfectly happy at 85 feet up in the air. I know. It's amazing. The villagers, the hunters, spot them. And then they cut down the brush underneath the tree, and they surround the tree. And then one of the men climbs a neighboring tree and starts making noise to frighten the animal. And then the animal, when it wants to get away, it can leap down and as far as 80 feet. And once the animal lands on the ground, then the the hunters can grab the tail of the animal. Ouch. So I would not be able to do that. <laughs> now, you get the locals to help you catch them, and then what do you do once you've caught a tree kangaroo? Well, we have a team of researchers, and we take blood samples, measurements of the animals, and then we put radio collars on them to really get a good handle on the home range of the animals because that's going to determine how much forest we really need to protect for healthy populations of animals. And then we're also trying to um, get a good handle on their feeding ecology. So far, we've documented that they eat over 90 species of plants. So we put the radio collars on, but we're also these blood samples and fecal samples. We're able to look at the genetics of tree kangaroos, and that's really important because very little is known about the taxonomy and the classification of tree kangaroos. There was a new tree kangaroo species um, that was discovered in 1995, so only 10 years ago. And for a large mammal, that's pretty exciting. Now, Sai, from your visit there, how, how do the people of New Guinea view the tree kangaroos? Well, they think, until Lisa told them, that everyone has tree kangaroos. That's why they thought she was kind of nutty to want to see them. And they were thrilled to discover that they were the lucky ones, the only people in the world to have the species that Lisa studies, the matches. It only lives on one peninsula, on one half of this one island in the whole world. Animals like this often have some folklore about them. What's something special that, that folks there believe, maybe a myth about the tree kangaroo? Well, they obviously think that tree kangaroos have some kind of special power because there's one belief that if you think of the girl that you love before you let your arrow fly to shoot a tree kangaroo, at the moment the arrow pierces the animal's body, that's when she will fall madly in love with you. Oh, my. That makes it tough on the tree kangaroos. Yeah, I know. It's really a pretty rotten Valentine's Day gift for them. <laughs> um, Lisa, what are the major challenges facing the tree kangaroo in terms of conservation? Um, in this area, it's mainly over hunting. And that's why we can work with the local hunters um, to talk about sustainable resources, 
because with them agreeing to set aside portions of land um, that are safe for the animals to breed and then disperse, they actually can have a sustainable resource. In other areas of New Guinea, it's logging and mining, so basically the destruction of the tree kangaroo's habitat. What do you hope this book accomplishes, Sai? Well, a couple of things. I mean, First, it's a great adventure story about real science. This is like a National Geographic expedition. You know, 44 people from three continents, including quite a few local people, hiking for three days up into a totally unknown place to study an animal about which almost nothing is known. That's just a great adventure story that makes science exciting to kids. And Lisa's a great heroine. I mean, she's a fabulous scientist, and a thing that few people know but will after they read this book about her is that even though she's working at 10,000 feet in this very strenuous environment, she has asthma and has not let that stop her. She also didn't let it stop her when other scientists said that what she wanted to do would never work. So that's a great listen for kids. Another thing, because she's amassed this large team of people from all over the world, Some of us bring to this job talents you wouldn't think could help conservation. So whatever talent you have, you can bring this to help the world remain whole. But the one thing, of course, I really want to get across the most, and you know this very well, Steve, is that all of my books are really love stories. And these animals, you look at them, and immediately you just lose your heart. You love them. You cannot help but want to know that they're going to be surviving halfway around the world. Even if you never even visit a zoo, you want to know that they're continuing to survive in this fairy tale, beautiful habitat of the cloud forest of Papua New Guinea. Thank you both for being with me. Thanks, Steve. It was great. Thank you so much. Lisa Dobick is a scientist who's worked with tree kangaroos in Papua New Guinea. And Cy Montgomery is the author of the book Quest for the Tree Kangaroo. To see photos of the tree kangaroo by Nick Bishop, go to our website, www.loe.org. Ahead, reeling in the history of one of the world's best sporting rivers. First, this note on emerging science from Ian Gray. He wanted the facts. They were hard to come by. He got his from shifty-eyed shoeshine boys and dark alleys and dingy bars. His only weakness, besides two-time blondes and a pack of smokes, he wasn't a computer. Now, a virtual detective was taking over his beat on the mean streets of America. The new detective in town? A computer program. Scientists at Cornell University are designing a computer program that will distinguish opinion from fact. The research hinges on how computers convert human language into computer language. Our words turned into zeros and ones. 
The Cornell team will try to teach their computers the difference between subjects, objects, and other parts of written language. Their goal is to develop algorithms that recognize key phrases of opinion, like according to, or it is believed that. This type of programming, called information extraction, can be used to locate specific types of information from sources like emails, blogs, and other online forums. Information extraction is a growing cornerstone of the security and surveillance industry, and the Cornell study is funded by the Department of Homeland Security. But Cornell scientists say that their research is only focusing on online newspaper text. For instance, their algorithms could be used to find out what newspapers around the world are saying about the American occupation in Iraq. They can also find out how much of what online sources are saying is based on factual statements versus statements of opinion. By cross-referencing thousands of texts at once, the computers could even determine whether some media are presenting opinions as though they were facts. That's this week's note on emerging science. I'm Ian Gray. Just the facts, ma'am. And you're listening to Living on Earth. Support for the Environmental Health Desk at Living on Earth comes from the Cedar Tree Foundation. Support also comes from the Richard and Rhoda Goldman Fund for coverage of population and the environment. This is Living on Earth on PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Every summer, a small group of anglers pay a lot of money, around $10,000 a week, to cast a line into a river on the Atlantic coast of Canada. They do it because the Grand Cascopedia has produced three-quarters of the largest Atlantic salmon ever caught in North America. And not only that, the Cascopedia's salmon stocks are in good shape, while many salmon rivers in eastern Canada are in decline, and most in the eastern United States are barren. A key reason for that lies in the Cascopedia's fabled history, the subject of a recent book by Hoagie Bix Carmichael. He's the son of the great singer-songwriter Hoagie Carmichael, who gave us Georgia on my mind and Stardust. Producer Bob Carty spent some time fishing with Hoagie Bix Carmichael, talking about history and his father's music, and about the river he loves. Oh, up a lazy river by the old mill run The lazy, lazy river in the noonday sun Lingered in the shade of a fire There are a number of uh, rivers mentioned in Dad's songs. This one is not a lazy river. This river can be a torrent, in fact, not up a lazy river. I wish Dad had been a, uh, a fisherman, I guess. It would have been something that we could have shared together. Wherever Hoagie Bix Carmichael goes, his father and his father's music are never far away, even when he's standing on slippery rocks, waist-deep in the fast-moving waters of the Grand Cascopedia River. Hoagie swings his 11-foot pole back and forth, looping the line in broad arcs until it casts a fly 30 yards out across the rapids. The river takes it downstream, and Hoagie watches with the intensity of a sprinter waiting for the starter's gun. Wow, that fly's going right over that pot of fish. Eeks, got to get one of them to come up for it. That's the problem. The Grand Cascopedia River tumbles out of the remnants of the Appalachian mountain chain in the Gaspé Peninsula of Quebec. Its pristine waters cascade down 100 miles of rapids, cutting a narrow valley through dense pine forests. Along the way, in more than 150 pools, there are salmon. From the riverbank, you can actually see them, 20 and 30 pounders floating there on the bottom. Hoagie's fishing guide, Lee Forn, can't help but remember what can happen when a fly touches water. 
It was about 20 minutes before dark, and the water just exploded and had him on for over two hours. He was 60 inches long, had a 28-inch girth on him. Monster fish. But for now, the monster fish are just ignoring Hoagie's fly. But that's okay. A friend of mine said, let me find a good fish, and if I do, I'll get a thousand dreams out of it. Hoagie has spent five years of his life writing about this river, not just because of its fish, but because, in a way, the river helped save his life. Hoagie Bix Carmichael was born in 1938 in Los Angeles and grew up there in the years when his father was at the top of his career, composing hit tunes, starring in Hollywood movies, hosting radio programs, touring around the nation and the world. As a kid, he used to cast plugs into the backyard swimming pool and pretend to catch a big trout. As an adult, he found a calling in public television, producing the Mr. Rogers and Julia Child shows. He was also managing his father's song catalog, which meant getting royalties for every new recording of Georgia On My Mind or The Nearness of You. And that allowed him to enjoy his favorite river. I first came to the Grand Cascopedia in 1985. I loved the beauty of the river, seeing a bald eagle land as I was casting for a, a rising 20-pound salmon. And, you know, you fight for a half hour. And it really did feel that I needed to come back here. Heart and soul, I fell in love with you, heart and soul, the way a fool would do badly. And Hoagie Bix did come back here almost every summer, even the worst summer of his life. In 1999, Hoagie was diagnosed with a bad case of lymphoma. He had to have chemotherapy. His appendix burst. He was very ill. And it was just a week before he was due to go to the Cascopedia. I begged those doctors to let me come up here. And they said, you can't go anywhere, let alone up there. I said, no, I really, you don't understand. I really need to come up there. So there's a wheelchair. I couldn't walk. I could barely walk. I had diapers on and all that. Anyway, they got me up here. They got me over in that bed where I stay. And I got under those, gosh, I'm getting emotional just thinking about it. I got under those covers and I, and I could hear that river and could smell it and I uh, it was my room again you know and it was uh, I shuddered with joy I was so happy you know I knew it was the right place for me to be and uh, it felt like home and by the time I got home I was feeling pretty good and it was just after that that I decided okay Hoagie you gotta think about this place more and give back a little you know Decided to write this book about the history of the Grand Cascopedia River, a river that means a whole lot to me. Hoagie's father had always told him that if you look at a piano, there are all kinds of new songs waiting there right on the keys. You just have to find them. And so Hoagie Bix began to try to track down the details of the Grand Cascopedia's history. In the 1880s, the river was the near-exclusive domain of the Governors General of Canada, the representatives of the British Queen. But in 1893, a group of American entrepreneurs bought them out. The best salmon river in the world was turned over to an elite club 
of American anglers. This is the original room for the old Cascopedia members. It was a small club of six, eight men at any one time. Mr. Vanderbilt, maybe the richest man in America, Henry Clay Frick, who worked with Andrew Carnegie and developed U.S. Steel, R.G. Dunn, Dunn and Bradstreet, still bears his name. In fact, R.G. Dunn um, employed four of uh, the presidents of the United States, including Abraham Lincoln. And they all brought uh, manservants. Some brought two. It's sort of all the simplicity money can buy. American domination of fishing on the Grand Cascopedia would continue for the next 90 years, raising not a little amount of debate. The Mi'kmaq native people had used these territories and fished the salmon for centuries before the sportsmen arrived. John Martin is the local Mi'kmaq chief. I remember uh, speaking with an elder a few years back. I said, yeah, you must have been doing a lot of fishing in your time, you know, when you were a young fellow. He said, no, I said, we couldn't fish. We'd get thrown in jail. We'd be chased off the river. You know, they wouldn't allow us to fish. And yet, it was our God-given right to do so. Guards and gates and things like that were set up, and our people uh, were prevented from exercising their right. But there was an upside to the private ownership of fishing rights. It meant there were few anglers. And those anglers had a self-interest in preserving the salmon stocks. Over the years, they limited the number of rods that could be used at any one time and the number of fish caught on any one day. They used their political connections to oppose plans to build dams on the river. That would have made this river a lake, and salmon don't like lakes, and would have never gotten up and it would have been dead. They worked very hard and made a few key phone calls, and the proposal was stopped. You quite often find that if you own something, you tend not to let uh, it run down. It's your preserve. They've always been able to limit the amount of fishing that's been on this river. That's a view shared by many locals. Mary Robertson was born and raised in the valley, and now she's the director of the Grand Cascopedia Museum. I heard a wonderful quote, and it was a gentleman from this area, and he said if it had not been for the Americans on this river, there would not be a salmon left in the river. These people came into this river. It became, let's say, their playground. So they knew that they had to uh, protect the resource. When you look at the situation from the outside, you're saying, oh, yes, well, what is it that the Americans came in and uh, they have the rights to the river and uh, we, the local people, can't fish? But some of the local people were able to make a bit of money. They worked for them. Carpentry skills were used. The women were able to work in the camps. And to this day, that continues. There's a close bond between the people who have the camps and the local people. Some days there just ain't no fish. Ain't no perch. Ain't no flounder. You flounder for fish. Ain't no fish. And although at times you get a mess full, other days are less successful. Some days there just ain't no fish. Ain't no fish. Some days there just ain't no fish. Other days there might be, and that's what keeps the fishermen alive, you know. You think you're going to catch something. You're just sure of it. Tomorrow 
is unpredictable, so it may be sound advice to put away some extra fish on ice. Holy mackerel. We're in the room right now, the bedroom that Jimmy and Rosalind Carter stayed in when they came fishing here. That's Bing Crosby, a picture of Mr. Crosby up here. Over the years, more and more celebrities have come to the Grand Cascopedia, but the river is no longer run as a private club. In the late 1970s, the provincial government of Quebec kicked out a lot of foreign fishing clubs and set up government agencies to run the rivers. It was an egalitarian idea, offering easy and relatively cheap access to salmon fishing for everyone. But many of those rivers have been overfished. The Grand Cascopedia escaped that fate perhaps because of the wealth and power of some of its sportsmen. Since 1982, the river has been governed by the Cascopedia Society, six local residents and six natives, operating in partnership with the private camps. Here, policies are not set by bureaucrats in some distant provincial capital, but by local people with a direct stake in the river. One thing they decided was that to protect the resource, fishing would be kept expensive. Through a lottery, some lucky members of the public can have access to fishing pools for as little as $60 a day. For most anglers, it's a bit more costly. For a day, for two people, it's somewhere in the area of $1,300, $1,400. When you think about it, eight or nine hours fishing on a river that could bring you the biggest fish of your life, if not the biggest fish in Canada, it's not too bad. Sports fishing on the Cascopedia supports about 130 jobs in the valley. It brings in more than $4 million a year. And given that about 1,000 fish are caught each year, that means that each fish caught on the fly is worth $4,000. Lee Wolf, the great angling writer and fisherman, said, a salmon is too valuable to only catch once. He's right about that. Which is why the Cascopedia Society supports catch and release. Hoagie hasn't killed a salmon in eight years. You can get a license to take a salmon away to your dinner table, but 87% of the salmon landed on the Cascopedia are now set free. And that has increased the average weight of the fish to about 20 pounds. Meanwhile, a deal with Greenland's commercial fish operators has got them fishing for anything but salmon, and that is helping stocks return to a number of rivers, including the Grand Cascopedia. The result? Well, back in the 1950s, there were only 250 large salmon in this river. This year, biologists counted 2,700. That's double the number in all the rivers in the U.S. Northeast. Yet there are some serious concerns for the future. Going down to that river, going down to that river someday, every day. I'm going down to that river. Wash all my troubles away. The greatest threat to this river and all rivers is global warming, of course, because we have weather patterns and warmer water that will affect this river in 30 or 40 or 50 years, and that scares me a lot. It's fragile. It's on the edge of being fragile. There is a road uh, running along here used by tourists, fishermen, and a lot of logging trucks. Living with the logging industry is a huge challenge for this river. A few years ago, local residents, natives, and anglers pressured the forestry companies to reduce the amount of silt runoff. But clear-cutting in the watershed creates a long-term problem. 
a problem Cascopedia Society manager Mark Gauthier explains to me as we take a canoe ride up the river. Oh, look at that. <laughs> that? <It's> big fish. <laughs> they jump out of the water. That's Salmo Salar. That's the Latin name. Salar meaning the leaper. The river is aging. We're getting flash flood. The, the logging industry tells us that we have as much water as before, but that water is only passed by over a three-day's period instead of g- giving us water throughout the season. The flash flood erode the bank. You get a wider river and shallower. We're losing pool on a yearly basis, so uh, f- we have to control logging so it doesn't interfere with the aquatic wildlife. Lady Amherst there, that's a D-fly. That's called a stone fly. Double hook, gives you a little uh, more weight. Back in his fishing pool, Hoagie is going through his fly wallet. Maybe a change will bring a bite. If it does, he'll land the fish, give it a pat, and let it go. There is a a sense of um, conservation here where you're not trying to pound these fish to death. Uh, You fish and you go home. It does work. For Living on Earth, I'm Bob Cardi on the Grand Cascopedia River in the Gaspé of Quebec. To find out more about the Cascopedia River, go to our website, www.loe.org, where you can hear our program anytime. Next week on Living on Earth, an historical mill town is set for a makeover, and one developer plans to make this relic of the Industrial Revolution a prototype for the Green Revolution. We decided if we're going to bring this building back, let's bring it back in a way that minimizes the impact on the environment, and let's respond to the people who are coming here to buy condos. These are people who grew up in the 60s and 70s who want to live their ideals. The renewable revival of Lawrence, Massachusetts, next time on Living on Earth. Up the lazy river by the old mill run That lazy, lazy river in the noonday sun Linger in the shade of a kind old tree Throw away your troubles, dream a dream We leave you this week with a fisher who doesn't practice catch and release. The bald eagle was declared the official emblem of the United States in 1782. The raptor was listed as endangered in the lower 48 states in the late 1970s, but has since made a remarkable comeback due to the ban on DDT, as well as protections under the Endangered Species Act. Bernie Krause recorded this fledgling bald eagle learning to fish for salmon near Glacier Bay in Alaska. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Ashley Ahern, Eileen Belinsky, Bruce Gellerman, Ian Gray, Ingrid Lobet, Andreas Martin, and Jeff Young, with help from Bobby Bascom, Kelly Cronin, and Jeff Turton. Our interns are Lauren Cox and Amy Fish. Dennis Foley is our technical director. Allison Learish-Dean composed our themes. You can find us anytime at LOE.org. 
I'm Steve Kerwood. From all of us here at Living on Earth, thank you for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science, and Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt and smoothies. Stonyfield pays its farmers not to use artificial growth hormones on their cows. Details at stonyfield.com. Support also comes from you, our listeners, the Ford Foundation, the Wellborn Ecology Fund, and Pax World Mutual Funds, socially and environmentally sustainable investing. Pax World, for tomorrow. On the web at paxworld.com. PRI, Public Radio International.